Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. How do you tell a new story about Muhammad Ali? I'm Jamil Smith, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Most would agree Muhammad Ali is the most accomplished heavyweight boxer of all time, worldwide. And he did his work at a time when being the heavyweight champion meant so much more than it does today. You probably knew that. You probably also knew that his political stances, in defense of his Muslim faith and against the war in Vietnam, turned him into both hero and villain, depending upon who you asked. You probably knew that late in his life, his spectacular gift of expression was all but silenced. You probably knew all this because he's been the subject of countless books, films, and other pieces of journalism. So what new perspective on Ali could we possibly gain from spending nearly seven and one half hours watching a new documentary about him? Turns out quite a bit. It's premiering September 19th on PBS. And as you might have guessed from the length, it's directed by the legendary documentarian Ken Burns along with his daughter, Sarah Burns, and Sarah's husband and collaborator, David McMahon. I feel like it's a bit dangerous for us to presume that we know people who are drenched in fame. I'm no Ali expert, which is probably why I say there's a lot to learn from watching this excellent film, filled with incredible footage that the filmmaker somehow unearthed, some of it previously unseen. But there's a difference between knowing someone is famous and truly knowing them. It's easy to think we know all we need to know about Muhammad Ali, but I'm for learning as much as we can about figures like him and from them. Today on Vox Conversations, Ken and Sarah both joined me for a fascinating conversation about their latest film, about its subject, and about the art of documentary storytelling. So, Ken Burns and Sarah Burns, thank you very much for joining us for Vox Conversations. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. I wanted to first ask you, Sarah, the style of Ali, the persona, you know, those in our generation never got a chance to see him in his prime. 
we've only seen clips. We've only heard sound bites. What made his style so distinctive? What was so special about him in the ring? I think what's so amazing about Ali as a boxer has a lot to do with what is so amazing about Ali as a person and his personality, his charisma comes through in the ring, in the way that he defines the fights, the way that he creates a narrative around them and and creates these stakes for each fight. But it's also because of the way he was as a fighter, which was really something new and different. And he was someone who insisted on being himself, on being free to be who he was in every way. And that was true of him as a boxer. He didn't follow the rules of boxing. He did all these things that you're not supposed to do. He kept his hands low. He would lean back away from punches. No one would have taught him to do that. Right. He just did that. And you just he don't do that in incredible, boxing. No, you, it's crazy. I mean, any trainer would have tried to get his hands on him and say, no, 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 this is not what you do. We have to duck this way. We have to parry punches. And he wasn't going to do that. And Angelo Dundee was smart enough, I think, to recognize that and that he was going to be who he was in the ring too. And he had this incredible ability, kind of innate ability, I think, to measure the distance Right. So he knew just how far away he had to be from his opponent and how far he had to lean back to get away from a punch. And that was not something that anyone else was doing. Yeah. I think back to that Liston fight where he hit him with that particular punch at that particular moment when Liston was at a particular distance from him. And he knew that he could only really use that punch right there. And so, Ken, did you ever watch him when you were younger? Did you ever have any memories of, you know, seeing Ali and be like, wow? This yeah, is different. Very rarely live. You know, the Ken Norton fight, I think, was the first one that was live TV. You know, we saw some clips from the Olympics in 60. Uh, we saw the the stuff coming out of the first Liston fight. It was mesmerizing. But it was, as Sarah suggested, it wasn't just what was happening in the ring. It wasn't just this new style of boxing that was fast and dancing and all of the things that he was good for, floating like a butterfly, stinging like a bee. It was the personality. It was the outspokenness. It was the poetry. It was the braggadocio. It was his beginning to sort of push himself and tempt the sort of larger society. And so in some ways he was given kind of three strikes. First of all, he's bragging. And by the time you hit the Liston fight, people want to shut him up and he's not going to be shut up. Strike one. And, you know, he's not behaving the way an athlete should and particularly a black athlete. He's a new definition of, of black manhood and, and a black sportsman. The second strike is after he beats Liston, he announces that he's part of the Nation of Islam. And that's already been labeled as a hate group by Mike Wallace and other people terrified that this doesn't fit the mold of the Christian turn the other cheek, nonviolent civil rights movement that's gaining traction. And then, of course, strike number three is saying that he's going to refuse induction into the draft. So everything that he did is set against the background of all of the things that he did outside the ring. And so you're constantly interrelating that. And I remember my dad and I were taking our cues a little bit from Howard Cosell, who was off put by the braggadocio, but then was one of the earliest to come and understand a little bit about who he was. And I don't think it's out of any altruistic thing. I think they both knew that there was a potential symbiotic relationship. They were a good show together. And they could play off each other. And so what they did is they went on and feigned a kind of animosity. But you, I remember in the beginning when he refused to call him uh, Muhammad Ali, called him Cassius Clay or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And, and we were sort of 
along with him. And then all of a sudden, we we went way beyond Howard Cosell because we were against the war. And when he was against the war, then he was our guy. And he was defining a new, more militant, activist civil rights posture, if that's the way you want to call it. He's provocative in every sort of way. And that was something, at least in my little bailiwick, you know, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, on a college campus, we could relate to him. And so he was our guy. By the time I was in college and we were getting bootleg footage from the Rumble in the Jungle, you know, he was God. And and you can't convince me otherwise. You know, he said, you know, service to others. We have to remember what an incredibly generous person he is. And I don't just mean handing out money, but he understood it in his heart. I made another film on boxing about Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson and, and Muhammad Ali have lots of similarities in the ring, but Jack Johnson was just for himself. Muhammad Ali was for other people. And you can see in between all of the braggadocio, this sense that he had a mission in life, this sense that he was there to help other people, this sense that he had obligations. So as he said, you know, service to others is the rent you pay for your room in heaven. And he's got the biggest room. I know. Yeah, I actually your documentary on Jack Johnson was one of the first times I really learned about Jack Johnson's story. And it, to me, it, it, you've become an expert, at, you know, encapsulating the enormity of events and people who we think we already know. We think we already knew what the Civil War was about. We thought we already knew what country music is. And we definitely thought we knew who Jackie Robinson was. Muhammad Ali, I think maybe, be, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like the biggest challenge of all. I mean, this is a guy who is a household name for everybody, possibly, you know, throughout the world. And how do you approach that challenge? Well, I think one of the keys to this is the fact that we have stayed with public broadcasting the whole time, which means PBS has one foot tentatively in the marketplace and the other firmly and proudly out of it so that there's no set time. You don't have to turn it around to make the deadlines. And so we can spend 10 and a half years on the Vietnam War and get it right. I, I'd argue that the Civil War and the Vietnam War were the most complicated, but all of the projects, whether it's about the celibate religious sect, the Shakers, or about the Brooklyn Bridge or Huey Long, they all have a set of problems and complications to them that you look forward to trying to overcome. And part of it is this insistence that you dive as deep as possible, that every human being and every story has contradiction and undertow, where, as Wynton Marsalis once said to me in jazz, sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time. And if you can juggle that, if you can manage it, then you can get below the sort of superficial, the conventional wisdom about Muhammad Ali. And you can find in that undertow, in that contradiction, something that makes him bigger and more important. And it's true. You know, the Civil War was told as a story about two sets of white people fighting and then deciding it was okay and we'd come back together again and not this story about slavery. And we named it as slavery. And, you know, it doesn't sound very radical right now to say it, but at the time, you can read my hate mail, it was radical <laughs> to say that it was about slavery. Indeed. Indeed. And in a way, it's what you do with this Ali story, you know, watching this film, you redefine something that, you know, someone, a journey who we already think we've watched, you know, a life that we think that we know. And Sarah, I mean, you and David have experience, of course, doing this with, with Jackie Robinson. What did you maybe learn from that experience that you applied to this? I'm curious. Yeah, you know, I think to speak to your point, too, about just how, you know, his this well-known story, but I think that 
no matter what the story is, uh, and certainly in the case of Muhammad Ali, it's also telling us something about where we are today. And so no matter when we make the film, it's always about right now also. And that was certainly true with Jackie Robinson. We learned that we were in the middle of editing and there was a scene in Jackie Robinson that had kind of come out and gone back in and we were trying to figure out how to make it work. And we had just decided in one editing session to put that scene back in. We were going to fit it here. We were going to find a spot. It was really important. The scene was about a moment when at Ebbets Field, they were celebrating Pee Wee Reese's birthday. I think it's about 1955. And... They turn the lights off and they wheel out a cake, like in the middle of the game. And the right. grounds crew, as a you know, as a way to honor Pee Wee Reese from Kentucky, they raise Confederate flags and the flagpole at Ebbets Field. And Jackie is livid, and you know his teammates don't quite get what the big deal is. But it's this really telling moment about where we are in 1955. Between that moment when we put that scene in the film and the next time we watched as we're working on editing, the Mother Emanuel massacre happened. And we were suddenly in the middle again of a new conversation about the Confederate flag and where it belongs and doesn't belong in this country. And that was going to happen in telling a story like that. And I think that with Ali, it's the same, that we understand him in his life and we want to look at the context of his life and what's happening with civil rights and what he's sort of in conversation with in his own time, but it's also in conversation with right now. It's been, of course, five years now since Ali died. How did this film get started? Was it in the wake of his passing? No. In fact, we'd been working on our film on Prohibition with a different producing team, not Sarah and Dave, uh, with Jonathan Eig. And then Jonathan had been helpful in our Jackie Robinson film that Sarah and Dave and I made. And he was already into a biography of Muhammad Ali and said, you should do this. He said to Sarah and Dave, and they said in a nanosecond, yes, and came to me and in a nanosecond, I said, yes, because we know who this is. This, as Sarah is saying, this is a guy who intersects with all of the important issues of the last half of the 20th century about sports, about athletics, about black people in sports, about race, about faith, about religion, about politics, about war, and as we get into a personal story about things that are bubbling up to the surface now in the Me Too movement. And so... Mark Twain is supposed to have said history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And we've never had a film, whether it's Jackie Robinson or this one, that hasn't rhymed in the present and allowed us to just tell the story. We didn't have to look up and try to figure out how to relate it to the present. We just knew we have to trust. It's hard enough to tell a good, complicated story, but we knew that whatever we tell, it would rhyme in the best possible way with this moment. And towards the end of the film, there's a wonderful cutaway from something when Howard Bryan is talking. And there's a demonstration taking place on the Brooklyn Bridge, still photographed. You have to really search to figure out what it's about. The average viewer won't get it. But there's a woman, a black woman in the back, and she's wearing a simple black t-shirt. And in white letters, it says Muhammad Ali. That's all she felt she needed at a recent demonstration to say something about courage, to say something about freedom, to say something about risk, to say something about a cause. And we couldn't agree more. 
Right. I mean, like you mentioned before, Ali helped redefine black manhood in a lot of ways, but I think he also was defining black power before the black power movement emerged. I mean, here he was a black guy from Louisville, Kentucky, who was allowed to hit white people in the face during Jim Crow and was paid and glorified for it. And we're in a situation where that career early on, he showed such amazing gifts and he showed such amazing prowess and confidence. Even his bravado never came off like it was about ego. It was simply stating the facts because he was beating people in a number of rounds. He told, said he was going to beat them in. He was beating people how he said he was going to beat them. And that kind of natural skill, as we've seen, has not come around since. Yeah, I mean, he used to say that it's not bragging if you can back it up. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the the basic idea. You know, I also think that it's important to understand that the way that he was bragging and the way that he did behave in that moment was in such contrast to even the black boxers who had come before him and had great success. So you have, of course, Jack Johnson, who did what he wanted to do and was run out of the country for it. You have Joe Lewis, who in reaction to Jack Johnson, essentially has his handler say, you certainly can't date white women. You can't even celebrate when you beat a white person. You can't even like show enthusiasm about winning. I mean, he really had to be so polite and deferential in order to achieve what he did, Joe Lewis did. And then you have Muhammad Ali, even as Cassius Clay, even as a younger fighter at the beginning of his career. And he was not going to do that. He was going to be himself. And that meant being a brilliant promoter. He's a better promoter than really any boxing promoter, right? He just had a genius for self-promotion. He knew how to get people to come to the fights. You know, the reporters loved covering him. He was great copy. He would talk to everybody, anybody, anytime. And he drew people to him. And he also turned people off because he was bragging. He was proud. He was predicting what round. But it all speaks to the fact that he was going to be himself and he did not care you know, if that bothered people, that was fine. And there's another part of this that's really, really important, which is as he says, look at me, I'm I'm so beautiful. I'm as I'm pretty as a girl. He's also in that braggadocio, people are repulsed by it who control the levers of power. But he is speaking for other people who do not feel that black is beautiful. And he is saying that black is beautiful. And it's all around the world. Anyone who felt the boot of the oppressor on it realized that he was going in the face of that. And that perhaps you could draft in the wake of Muhammad Ali and there would be something better. And if it wasn't better, at least I would feel better about myself. And there's something so joyous of watching particularly in the United States, the black community, but then all around the world in sub-Saharan Africa and Saharan Africa and the Middle East and elsewhere, Southeast Asia, this identification with him because he knew their struggles. And so all of that bragging was a way of saying, I am somebody. Repeat after me, I am somebody. So we know that in a modern context of civil rights, but Muhammad Ali is the head of the pack. And what's fascinating, I think, also about that is how much of his own manhood, how much of his own perspective as an adult and as a black man in this country was shaped by Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. 
mean, that's a very complicated subject. How did you feel like that was best approached? Because uh, you do essentially many biographies of Malcolm, of Elijah Muhammad, and a lot of other people within the film. How did you decide to approach it in that way? Yeah, I mean, Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X are among the most important characters in this story who are not Muhammad Ali himself. And it was important to us to make sure that we really could understand that Ali's story as a journey in faith, that this is something that is influencing him across his entire life. And it's having a huge impact, I think, on him in many ways, in his career, in how he speaks out, certainly in his stance against the Vietnam War. I mean, Elijah Muhammad himself had gone to jail rather than registering for the draft. And so he had that example that I think gave him some courage and inspired him just as he did that for others. And so I think that we always wanted to have that through line of his faith as being really central to the story and trying to understand how it's related to every other part of Ali's life. And so starting from the time when he's a teenager, you know, and he's grown up in segregated Louisville, his father's a painter who is frustrated at not having the career opportunities that he wants to have because of the racism of Louisville, paints signs for stores rather than being able to work as a painter the way he wants to. And has explained to his son, young Cassius Clay, why that is. And he's interested in Marcus Garvey, his father. And so he's absorbing all of these things in his childhood. And he gets, as a teenager, he gets his hands on this record, A White Man's Heaven is a Black Man's Hell, recorded by Louis X, now Louis Farrakhan. And he absorbs that message. And it makes sense to him. It means something to him. I think it helps him make sense of the world around him in a really important way. And he's so young, right? Like he's a kid. And when he, you know, he wins a gold medal at the Olympics, he's 18 years old and he's like thrust into the spotlight. And this becomes, I think, a guiding force in his life. And ultimately he becomes very close with Elijah Muhammad and with his son, Herbert Muhammad. And they really become his family in many ways. You know, Elijah Muhammad is very much a father figure and Malcolm X is like an older brother figure to him. And even later on, as he, after Elijah Muhammad dies and his son Wallace takes the Nation of Islam in a different direction, one that is more, that sort of hues closer to a more international orthodox form of Islam, he goes that way. And that becomes a hugely important part of his post-boxing life, his devotion to his faith, the way that he reaches out to people all over the world. And so we wanted to make sure that we followed this faith journey all the way across his life. And that provides a kind of fluidity. I mean, our tendency is to do the take on the Nation of Islam, and you fix them in time, and that's it. But this is an evolving process for them, but particularly for our hero in his journey, and obviously, as Sarah says, in his faith journey. And so there's there's a malleability early on, and there's an evolution. He can be supporting what George Wallace is saying in the separatist message, but after the while, he embraces a version of Islam that's more in keeping what Malcolm X is discovering in the last years of his life before he's assassinated by the Nation of Islam, and more what Wallace Muhammad, when he takes over from his father, is going to embrace. And it's why when he dies, he dies the most beloved person on the planet, because he has carried a message of love, not about separation, but about of fulfilling, you know, your own destiny in the world by reaching out and being generous to other people. To me, 
it's a hugely important way to understand and undergird the more familiar boxing story. Who won? Who lost? What happened? What this fight? When he was licensed was taken away? When he was sentenced to jail? That sort of stuff. That underlying it and permitting it to be fluid is essential to telling a good story. Right. And you'll understand that he didn't take his pilgrimage to Mecca until his 30th year. Uh, of course, he took a second one later. But, you know, that's has a similar effect on him as it did for Malcolm. And he, he understands that the teachings of the Nation of Islam about white devils and so on and so forth, this racial separation and segregation is not the authentic message of Islam. You know, I, he's a human being. Like, that's the thing. Sometimes we forget he's larger than life people. And, you know, he's not even 30 when he fights Joe Frazier for the first time. And he's the old guy. <laughs> and so we forget sometimes, you know, how human they are and how young they are. That's exactly. Athletes. It's hugely important to understand that context and that how fallible they are, that you don't wish to put him on a statue as being somebody perfect. You actually have to acknowledge all of these inner tensions and he's being pulled in lots of different directions. And sometimes he goes in directions that aren't good. And sometimes he acts in ways that are not good. At one point, Todd Boyd said, you know, when he's, you know, so harsh on Joe Frazier that he's using his powers, the implicit thing being that he has superpowers, that he's using his powers for evil instead of good in that instance, Todd says. And he's, he's absolutely right. And that's okay. You know, we somehow in our media culture expect heroes to be perfect and lament the opposite about them. When in fact, the Greeks have told us who design this notion of, of heroism, that what's interesting is the negotiation, sometimes the war between a hero's great strengths and their weaknesses. Achilles had his heel and his hubris to go along with his great strengths. And so you have to tell a story of Muhammad Ali that is faithful in every sense of that word to who he was. And that's a changing, ever-changing target. And we wanted to follow it along rather than sort of have the convenience of fixing him in amber and then talking around him. We don't know him. He knows him. And we let the record speak for itself. And so people say, oh, in the beginning, he was this way. Well, he was also that way. And there's so many beautiful moments early on in the film where he betrays a wisdom as a teenager or as an early 20-something that I wish I had in my late 60s. It turns out that the early years of Muhammad Ali's life are story-worthy, too. In fact, even though lots of celebrities claim cinematic origin stories to explain how their acclaimed careers came to be, Ali's involves a stolen bicycle, a basement gym, and a cop with a surprising side job. Ken and Sarah Burns will tell that story after the break. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, 
or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. We see his childhood through one lens in the first episode. And then when we get to Joe Frazier and how Ali really bullied Joe Frazier with terms and stereotypes that folks who espouse Jim Crow would use. The whole episode with him with, you know, getting his bike stolen and finding the gym with the police officer, you see that in a whole different light because <laughs> you think about what Joe Frazier was doing at that time. <laughs> it's a great creation myth to understand that your bicycle's stolen and you go, you were trying to find a cop, you're mad, you want to get even and he meets a guy. The first cop he meets is teaching black and white kids how to box. He says, you really want to get even? Then you got to learn how to do this. So boom, a boxer is born. But, you know, as Joe Frazier points out, he never had a bike to be stolen, you know? And here is Muhammad Ali, a light-skinned, middle-class black kid who is now using the language, as Todd Boyce says in our film, of a white racist against this man who has experienced more fully how difficult it is to be a black person in the United States of America from mm, 1619 on. Right, right. And, you know, Sarah, as Frazier himself notes, Ali didn't have a job other than boxing in his whole life, really. (laughs) Right. He also has the greatest, as Jonathan Icke says in the film, he has the greatest contract in the history of boxing to start his career, right? This deal with the Louisville sponsoring group who are taking a portion of the profits that they're paying for his training. They're giving him a salary. I mean, this is unheard of. And so even from the beginning of his career, he's in this sort of incredibly fortunate position that most boxers do not have that opportunity. And certainly Joe Frazier did not enter boxing in that way either. And yeah, I mean, I think it's important to think about the way that he evolves, right? And there are these things that he looks back on and he understands that he got them wrong later in life. And I think going back to what we were talking about before, just in terms of him being human, of telling a story of a human being who is fallible, who is so young and you know flawed in lots of different ways, but also the fact that later in his life, he's reflective about that. And we get to look back on the way that he treats Joe Frazier, on the way that he treated women, his wives, the way that he abandoned Malcolm X. And there are these things in his life that not just that we can look at and see where he made mistakes, but also he's looking at them and reflecting back on them and trying to do better. And that's, I think, an amazing thing that we get to tell a story that has that whole arc where this person evolves and can actually reflect back on those mistakes. Mm -hmm. Speaking of his evolution, one of the things I also thought was very fascinating, which I also didn't know a whole lot about, was during the time that he was basically banished from boxing. It's three and a half years. He went basically on a speaking tour uh, and started speaking to, you know, a lot of white audiences and a lot of college campuses. I mean, aside from getting the footage and as a former producer, I'm just amazed at some of the footage that you were able to get. 
How did you come to understand that period in his life and his evolution in that time? This is a really great story. I mean, he is forced out of boxing by his conviction, by the fact that the boxing commissions are not giving him a license, that he's been stripped of his titles. He has no source of income. He's not a saver. He's a giver. And so he and his second wife, Belinda, are sort of forced on their own. And he, he is a great proselytizer for the Nation of Islam. And he takes Muhammad Speaks, the book, and holds it up. And he's learned some stuff from Dick Gregory. And, you know, at first he's a little awkward, but then he sort of hits a stride. And what's nice is that the reason why he's been denied his boxing career is because of his stand on the Vietnam War. And at that time, it happens to coincide when young people, particularly on American campuses, have turned against the war, that the original moral opposition to the war, which had been minuscule, now turned into a self-interest big movement, which is, I don't want to be drafted, I don't want to be killed. And he coincides with it and gives a kind of philosophical and moral underpinning to the outrage that people are feeling everywhere. So Muhammad Ali remains a hero to some segment of the black population. He's also an anathema because of the way he's behaved, the Nation of Islam, which is not Christian, and because he's refused the draft. And African Americans are disproportionately being drafted into this man's army. And so he's got a huge segment of the African-American population that is also not with him, but he's gaining this new audience. And by the end of the war, they realize he's been right. The Supreme Court, on a technicality, agrees that he should not go to prison. And he understands this. And so all of a sudden, he is in a position to have enlarged his audience in the most amazing way, because he's also proven to people the more important stories, not that he can be funny, not that he can proselytize, but that he can stick up for his convictions, that he's courageous, that he is seeking freedom all the time, and he's willing to risk everything. And, you know, you can count on the fingers of one hand and particularly in athletics, people speak out a lot and some people react to that, shut up and dribble. But, you know, with the exception of Carlos and Smith, with the exception of Kurt Flood, who said, look, the reserve clause, this plantation system doesn't work. Oh, you're a black man. That's not going to happen. It's going to take Messerschmitt and McNally, two white guys, to make the reserve clause go away, the plantation go away. And then Colin Kaepernick, nobody is even close to experiencing what Muhammad Ali walked into consciously. And I think he begins to change minds because people realize how conscious that was. It wasn't, oops, I raised my fist, maybe I shouldn't have done that, or I'm glad I did that, but I've sacrificed this. He said I'd face a machine gun rather than go against his faith. And suddenly people have to, even if it's begrudging, have to admire what it is. And by the time he comes back and loses to Frazier and then wins Frazier and gets back his title, this is a story that you can't make up. It's Shakespearean, it's Greek tragedy, it's all of those things rolled in the one. At the essence, though, is that ability for him to stay true to himself and do it his way. Even as Howard Bryant said, even when he's wrong, he's sticking to himself. And so this is this is one definition of freedom, of American freedom. So he's an avatar of all of that, of love, of skill, of talent, of courage, and of freedom. Yeah. And I think in, later in his life, he gets the sort of lionization I think a lot of elderly Black celebrities get. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of our martyrs have gotten, you know, after they're gone. We see him beloved. I wanted to know, really, how much do you feel like that 
was because of his disease and how he looked, Sarah. You know, it's interesting going into working on this film and thinking about that 1996 Olympics moment where he lights the torch, which is such an indelible moment. And so many people you talk to, including even the people who were too young to have really followed him in his prime, have these really distinct memories of that moment. It just is sort of seared in people's memories and and was a really powerful moment. I mean, the stories are mostly about people weeping or noticing that their dad was weeping or whatever it is. And going into telling the story, I had this idea about that as being kind of unfortunate, that this was this moment where for all of its beauty and all of that meaning in it, that it also somehow represented white people becoming comfortable with Muhammad Ali now only when he's silent. That that reflects something about how kind of dangerous he was early on, how scary he was to white America. And now that he is hobbled by this disease, he's vulnerable and he's been silenced by it, that now we can embrace him. But I think that what David Remnick says in the film, and I think we've made it much more complicated and more interesting than that, which is that that's part of it, maybe. But I also think there's something, as Remnick says, maybe it's possible that we're capable of learning something. And I actually think in going more deeply into this story and getting to know Muhammad Ali better through this research, through this archival material, sort of understanding how he touched people, is that he's not just some symbol. He is this person who reached out to everyone in this extraordinary way, that generosity we were talking about before, not just financial generosity, but sort of generosity of spirit. He gave himself, he made everyone he encountered feel seen and feel special and like he cared about them in an incredible way. And I think that a lot of it is actually that he brought people along with him. So it's not just as simple as saying, oh, these people who disliked him before, now they like him because he can't speak up anymore. I actually think that in a lot of ways, many of those people were brought along by him and came to understand that he was right about the Vietnam War, that he was right to brag, that he was that good. He is the greatest, you know, and so it's not just a kind of, okay, well, now we can like him. It's actually that he sort of dragged people, in some cases, kicking and screaming or begrudgingly into this more enlightened space. And that's a beautiful thing. I think it is a really beautiful thing in that. And Sarah hit the nail right on the head. And remember, 20 years before Atlanta, he's already reclaimed his title twice. I mean, you can't appreciate how it is. He's undeniably, in everyone's mind, the greatest boxer who has ever lived 20 years before he raises the torch. So it might be that he's harmless and that it can evoke some sympathy or some pathos. And it did. And I remember crying on my couch, but I'd loved him, well, I'd loved him for 30 years and or more. But, you know, I think most people by the time of the rumble in the jungle and then, you know, losing to Spinks and then coming back against Spinks again, you just go, okay, they have never made any human being quite like this and they will never make another human being quite like this. And he is as American as Abraham Lincoln. He's as American as, you know, Louis Armstrong. He's as American as Elizabeth Cady Stanton or Ida B. Wells. He is as American as Harriet Tubman. He's as American as Ben Franklin. This is as American as you get. And it is all of the contradictions and all of the difficulties and all of the undertow and 
the greatest boxer who's ever been. I mean, Remnick says that at the beginning of the film, trying to remind us how divisive he was, is that at the end, he seems like this revered figure. He says, like the Buddha. And in a way, by the end, it's not like the Buddha. It's the Buddha. It just happens to be a different religion. You know, he's got a kind of sainthood that he has earned that is just spectacular. And that room in heaven is pretty big. Indeed. And speaking of reclaiming titles, I think the most important ones, he, he reclaimed his name from Elijah Muhammad, who originally gave it to him and insisted that he would revoke it, I guess, at his, at his pleasure, when Ali says that he's only going to go back and fight for the money in order to pay unpaid debts. And that, of course, goes against the Nation of Islam's, Elijah Muhammad's decree that Allah will provide in times like that. He takes away his name, but he still uses it professionally. And of course, no one was going to take it away from him. <laughs> right, I think it, was, it spoke to, yeah, it spoke <laughs> yeah. to Elijah Muhammad's uh, complete lack of understanding of how celebrity culture works. That being said, especially before the first Frazier fight in 71, you all show how celebrity kind of engulfs Ali before the fight. Can you tell me a little bit about what you feel like was maybe going through his mind? I mean, there's more to where he's hinting at retirement. He's still very young. Yeah, I think he loved being on the stage always. And I actually think that even if he hadn't discovered boxing in that serendipitous moment, that of course that origin story mythology happens to actually be true, which is wild. But I think we would have known who he was still. You know, I mean, boxing was the platform, but I think he was going to be someone important. That his sheer force of personality and charisma and courage was going to bring him to the world in some way. And I think he knew that. Like It just feels like he always, from the time he was a child, kind of knew that he was here to do something important. And so I think the celebrity and the attention came as no surprise to him. It seemed inevitable to him. And he knew what to do with it. He knew how to talk to the press. He knew how to bring people in and he loved every minute of it. I mean, part of why I think he stayed too long in boxing, sure, for the money, that's always a factor, but I think also because of the stage, because of the attention. And that was so central to who he was, was being on that stage. And then after it was gone, after it was essentially taken from him, the tragic Larry Holmes fight, which is something I actually do remember. Kim, what do you feel like replaced that for him, if anything? Well, I think he didn't have a problem once he could give it up. I think it was so hard to give it up as for all the reasons that Sarah just described. This was his way to the rest of the world. I think that as it became very clear that there was an affliction that he had developed, a neurological disease, Parkinson's, that had come along with all the punishment that he had learned to take, that's going to make it perhaps imperative that he transited into something else. But he continued doing everything that he always did before. He just wasn't boxing for money in the ring. And that's an important thing. There's a sadness. There's an excruciating 
car wreck to the ending, you know, of those last fights, Bobek and Holmes. And you just don't want his kids are saying, Daddy, stop. You know, most of his corner has already left him and it's they don't want to see this happen. And then I think what happens is that he rises Phoenix-like out of the demise of the outer career, which is why Rashida says, his daughter says, you know, boxing is just this much, is because he would be able to continue everything that he had done before, the reaching out to people, the loving people, the seeing them, to making them feel not only heard but recognized all around the world. And that never stopped, even when he couldn't speak. And that means that he had one of the great, I mean, first of all, he has three or four boxing careers within that story. He's got an early life, which is beyond compelling. And then he really has this post-boxing life that takes him to the kind of sainthood that we're discussing here, where he becomes, I mean, I hate the word icon, but he becomes such an important symbol, such a source of inspiration, such a manifestation of courage and uh, forbearance and affirmation in the face of adversity, which has been the African-American story in the United States for centuries, and he embodies it. To me, one of my favorite moments is when the Supreme Court exonerates him or, you know, on a technicality says you don't have to go to prison. And they shove a mic in his face and says, what do you think of the system? Now, this is a perfect moment for Muhammad Ali to brag. I told you I was right. I was right all along to give us a poem or whatever. And he says, well, I don't know who's going to be assassinated tonight. I don't know who's going to be denied equality or justice. He's thinking back for 350 years of the trials and tribulations of black people on this continent. He's thinking about Emmett Till, whose open casket he saw the pictures of in Jet Magazine, someone his own age. And he's looking ahead to people that he doesn't yet know. We don't yet know their names, but now do, like Rodney King and Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. He's taking all of that before he accepts modestly the idea that this was just a good thing for him in that moment, but it's not a good thing in the context of what he's put on earth to do. And that to me is like, it's one of his finest moments because at any point you can come out of there and go, woohoo, oh, I'm so happy to be back in the embrace or whatever it is you say. But if you're Muhammad Ali, you get to brag and write a poem about it. He's thinking about everybody else, everybody else but himself. Speaking of poetry, <laughs> I mean, I mean, the man was a poet. We, I mean, not just because he read poetry at the bitter end in New York City. What did you all learn about how he came to speak in that kind of rhyme? I mean, for somebody who people talk about him not being sharp. I mean, certainly the Army's aptitude tests said as much. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what kind of intelligence they were measuring. Yeah, they, right. I mean, he was not a great student. That is true. Well, but same. clearly his intelligence, his cleverness, that wit is a defining characteristic. You know, again, it's, it's just his incredible charisma. And it it's undeniable. I mean, every, you know, we were so lucky in this film um, to have this wealth of material to work with, this incredible wealth of archival material of Muhammad Ali, saying who he is and being himself and being beautiful and making rhymes. And it's this amazing thing as filmmakers to be able to go through and find these, you know, 500 plus hours of footage, engage with him in that way. And the rhymes are a hugely fun part of that, part of his personality and part of his genius. You know, it's part of his storytelling. 
right? Each fight, he's the one who's defining these narratives around the fights. And that's in the poetry too. He's setting up who he is as a kind of character for a fight as a boxer. It's like his, you know, superhero origin story. He's like, this is the guy who I am. And I mean, they they have this like enduring charm that I think we still enjoy now. Indeed. It's just like what uh, Walter Mosley said. Ali influences you in ways you don't even necessarily think about. And I know certainly, I mean, to me, as a kid who wasn't confident, especially my ability to play sports, I just looked at him as the sort of avatar of conspicuous black confidence. You know, he may have not have known. He may not have actually been as confident. Maybe he had his own anxieties, but he was never going to let you see that. No, he's going to say, I can drown a drink of water and kill a dead tree. <laughs> it's just, you just, when you just stop and think of every one of those images, and there are 20 of them, you just go, this is the most confident, charismatic person. And it may mask insecurity. It may mask all of these things. But what it does is it instills in others, as you say, that magical ability to transform them in a kind of organic way. He leads by an example that is difficult to perceive exactly how he touched you, but every one of us has been touched by us, or he has put a smile on our faces. However begrudging that smile might be, you cannot deny that drown a drink of water and kill a dead tree. The imagery of it is just, it's mythological, and that's why the poetry means something, because poetry is the closest writing gets to music, and music is the closest thing. You know, my brother once said, when film dies, it hopes it goes to heaven as music, you know? And basically, the closest we get to music and writing is poetry, and he understood the music of the human soul and the irony of it. You know, Mark Twain said that the source of laughter is not joy but sorrow. There is no laughter in heaven, he said. And so there's something ironic that it's hitting the yes and no at the same time, and he he understood it, and he mastered it, and he then generously gave it to us. It wasn't shtick that was self-promoting. It was shtick that everybody could own. And that kind of generosity, there'll never be anything like him. Like, who's the heavyweight champion now? I don't know, and I don't care. Because after him, I mean, Jack Johnson, it mattered to me. Joe Lewis is important to tell that story. Some of the white guys that were went up as great white hopes are there the people that that Ali fought. But when he's done? You know, I think it also has to do with his authenticity. He is himself. And even when he's performing, he's himself. He is authentically him. And so even those moments when you feel like he's doing this for the cameras, he's doing this because he's on stage, it's not false though. It's really who he is. And I mean, we've talked to Rashida about this too, one of his daughters. And she says, yeah, you know, the version of him at home is pretty much like the version of him that you see out there. Maybe he's performing, but it's really him, right? Like it's not, I mean, even when he understands the kind of strategy of it, you know, he's influenced by Gorgeous George. He understands that playing the villain and that being booed is okay if it means you've got people in the seats paying to see him. And that's part of his smarts as a promoter, but he's still always being himself, so I don't know. I mean, it's a good question whether his bragging was ever masking some kind of insecurity. I wonder if it wasn't, because you do feel like there's something really honest about him, even when he's performing in the way that he's what he's saying. 
Muhammad Ali, the champ, the greatest. I can hardly think of a bigger personality. I really wanted to ask Ken and Sarah, is there any subject, any person too big or too complicated for a Burns documentary? We'll find out after one more short break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This is possibly the largest personality you've had to cover in one of your documentaries. And, And Sarah, you too. Can anything be the subject of a documentary that you two do? Is there anything that you maybe have wanted to make a film about but couldn't or didn't see a way around it? Not yet. We've been pretty fortunate, I'll knock on wood, that you know we certainly never abandoned a project you know, when we got into it because it didn't work. I, I would suggest that you know, Louis Armstrong comes as close to Muhammad Ali in terms of the sheer force of personality and of goodness of kind of sainthood in that regard. And I've never met anyone like him, just like I've never met anyone like Muhammad Ali. But, you know, I sort of feel I'm working on more projects than I ever have in my life because there's a kind of greed. The process is really infectious. It's really good to try to make a film better and to work with this tight network of people who are so good and so talented and make our jobs easier to try to say it the right way with words and show it the right way with pictures and add the right music and effects and and then be working on several things at once. You know, we're never going to run out of topics in American history. And they're always 
something compelling. At the same time, to be honest, we've made the same film over and over again, you know, and we're just asking some essential questions about who we are as a people. And what does an investigation of a past tell us about these people who like to call themselves Americans and what it also says about who we are now and where we might be going? I, I just think we're not in the business of putting our thumb in the scale or having political axes to grind, but we are interested in the complexity of story and not the reduction of story to some sort of sanitized Madison Avenue version of it or something that looks like the conventional wisdom that you can tie up in a neat little bow. This is an untidy film. This has got loose ends as it as all of life does. And people that are closest to us remain inscrutable to each other always. And so there's always going to be that kind of elusive unknowability. And that in itself is the motivation to keep going and to keep trying to tell stories. As you mentioned, there's a certain style. There's a certain, I don't say paradigm to your films, but there's a way that we come to expect a Ken Burns film to play out uh, a little bit. And Sarah, I'm curious to know how your personal style got developed under, you know, not maybe just under your dad's wing, but also just on your own learning film as someone who's done like a tiny bit of that. I'm very curious to know. Yeah. You know, I, I grew up with this, so I, you know, it wasn't until I was had sort of headed down another path and was doing some other things that I kind of came back to filmmaking as an actual career, but I I mean, there's literally a photograph of me at maybe 18 months old standing, pretending to edit on a Steenbeck flap at, you know, pretending to splice film on an editing table. And I was, it was in my house. It was in my life all the time. I used to sit in and give my comments on screenings of the baseball series when I was 10 years old, 11 years old. You know, I think a lot of it is osmosis. It's in the air, but also I think it's about the stories. Like we are storytellers. And so for us, we wrestle each time, even if there are these elements that are useful tools, right? The combination of the talking head interviews of this sort of voice of God narrator, the use of the archival material, it's still just always in service of telling a really good story. And we do, you know, our process is all about these sort of first, the step of gathering, of researching, of talking to people, of filming, of bringing in the archival material and the music and all these pieces that are going to help us tell the story and of writing the script. In the case of this film, that was a long process. We thought originally we were going to do three parts and we wrote three episodes worth and it was only 1974. And it was like, okay, I guess we're going to do four then. But, you know, and then we start this process of subtraction. We sort of have gathered this massive amount of stuff. And then we start boiling it down and finding the very best stuff and figuring out what works and what doesn't. I mean, there's plenty of stuff that doesn't end up in the film that was terrific that if you had asked me at the beginning if it was going to end up in the film, I would have said 100% yes. And for whatever reason, in service of that story, it just doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It doesn't move us along in the story in the right way. And so it's that process of wrestling with all that material. And that's sort of how we end up where we are. You know, there are not rules for that, right? Like we do what we need to do to make the story sing. Yeah. And think about one of the things that did end up in the film, which is, of course, the very first image that we see is, you know, Ali being playful with his daughter, stealing her food, fooling her, thinking that something's out the window. It's very funny. It's very light. But honestly, 
you know, not to be grandiose, but I thought it, it kind of made me think about what it was like to grow up with this guy <laughs> and, and, and thinking like, okay, you know, I can't imagine what it must have been like for you. His films come out, I guess, when you and I were preteens, early teens. And it's like, okay, wow, this is a thing. And how did that process for you on a personal level? Yeah, you know, I, I remember really well when the Civil War came out. I was almost eight, right? Yeah, that seems right. Almost eight. And this was like a big moment. Like I understood something even at that age. There was this attention, you know, I mean, our phone was ringing. We were getting buckets of mail. It was like, you know, I was, I kept a diary at that time, just sort of coincidentally. And it was like, you know, my dad was on the news tonight. You know, I mean, it was this sort of moment and I was aware of that. But, you know, it's also the the film part of it was just in my life always. And most of the time, literally in our house, everyone around me. I mean, my mom also, a documentary filmmaker, it just sort of was there always. But, you know, there was a time when I thought I didn't want to get into documentary filmmaking. I sort of kept it at arm's length a little bit because, you know, I think that's kind of natural when it's the family business to sort of want to make sure that you're finding your own way. I was interested in film. I went to college thinking I was going to major in film studies, not necessarily to make documentaries, just because I was interested in making movies, you know, in narrative films, whatever. And I ended up changing my major to American studies. Essentially, film studies wasn't the right fit for me. I sort of flipped through the course book and found all these things in American studies that looked interesting to me. And I had no self-awareness at the time that I was switching from the medium of my dad's work to the content, the subject of it in my studies. It just was what seemed interesting to me. And sure enough, that led me on this path back to making films. I ended up writing my undergraduate thesis about the wrongful convictions of the Central Park Five. And that later became a book that I wrote and then the first film that we made together. Indeed. And I, you know, being a kid from Ohio who is about, you know, the same difference in age as Ali between Emmett Till and Ali. Emmett Till was about six months older. And the youngest of the Central Park Five was, mm. you know, within a year of me. Right, your age. And yeah, yeah I think it, it, to some degree, I think it, as I watched this film about Ali and listened to people talk about his experience of that, I definitely felt a kinship in that. You know, it's not something that just happens on the news. It's not something that just you read about in a paper on a website. It's very, very personal. And I'm very glad that these markers of history happen throughout the film, you know, the assassinations, what have you, it's dealt with, you know, strictly from the standpoint of how did this affect this man and how did he process this even with Malcolm, you know, where he was vitriolic and, and rather hateful in his rhetoric. How did this shape the person that we're trying to learn about? And I think that's what documentary filmmaking should be. I think there is a, a conversation between the individual, the biographical subject, and the era that not only is, what's the right word, shaping them, but they are shaping as well. And I think with Muhammad Ali, you get a chance to see that, the way in which an events like with Malcolm X are sort of shaping him, good and bad, and also the ways in which he's has the opportunity to change who we are, and, you know, largely for the better. Yes. Yes, indeed. I'm curious to know, speaking of documentary filmmaking, what do you both feel about how it's evolved? I mean, with the kinds of things that we're seeing, especially in sports documentaries. I mean, we're seeing this, these 10 episodes of The Last Dance, but they're produced 
by Michael Jordan, essentially. And obviously, there are some key things that were left out. You know, we see a documentary about Woody Allen produced by Ronan Farrell and other members of the Farrell family. How do you feel like these pieces introduced into the space of documentaries affects or doesn't affect what you do? Well, I think there's been a huge golden age of documentaries have been going on for decades and decades. People have trusted that the stories that we tell obey the same laws of storytelling as a feature film maker, but we can't make stuff up. And yet there's a freshness to them. There's something new and I'm excited by it. But I think being in PBS, I'm concerned about the documentaries that are being made, you know, in which the subject is a huge part of the production team. That's an important thing, or we're leaving out one aspect of it. But that's okay. We've adopted a certain style of making films that liberates us a little bit from having to choose a particular side, though it's very, very clear in many cases or subtly what side we're on. I think it's good. We should make stories. We should have the debates. You know, we're also having a debate with Roadrunner about the use of uh, manufactured AI voices for something that Anthony Bourdain wrote but never said, and there's no warning of it, and it's only after the fact that we've learned about it, which raises the same kind of huge ethical questions that the use of making a 10-part documentary about Michael Jordan that's produced by Michael Jordan raises. And I still thank God for being in PBS because neither of those things could happen in our place and we wouldn't be faced with that kind of ethical dilemma. At the same time, you know, these are very interesting and fascinating films and they've got to be part of our conversation, but all of it has to be part of our conversation. It's the more films, the better. You know, I mean, there's lots of deadwood out there. What's called so-called reality TV, of course, isn't. Nobody eats bugs on TV. Nobody runs around naked in the woods for days and nobody proposes to somebody else in front of millions of other people. That's hardly reality. So I think that when we're talking about documentary, we were talking about a wonderful spectrum from things that are almost feature films, the ecstatic truths of a Werner Herzog, the stylistic truths of an Errol Morris, you know, our kind of emotional archaeology, the political advocacy of a Michael Moore, and then some of these great subjects, whether it's Nexium or Burdain or OJ or Michael Jordan, you know, we, we're given stuff that has got at its heart something that really happened, and, and we as a culture are trying to digest it. Well, I could talk to you both about this for forever, but I uh, just let you go. Ken Burns, Sarah Burns, thank you very much for joining us on Vox Conversations. Thank you. Thank you. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Amber Hall is the new Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, please let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests, guest hosts, topics, please send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, give us five stars, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot. 
because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.